Good morning. My name is Art Cash, and I'm excited to talk to you about Ephesians 2 today. We're going to be in the second half of verse 5 uh, through verse 7. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word. Father, my prayer for uh, myself and my brothers and sisters this morning is that you would help us see what's true. You would help us know it. You would help us believe it. You would help us experience it. You would help us to live in light of it by your spirit. Please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I love being a dad. I'm not saying through loving it that it's easy. It's actually really hard. I'm thankful for how hard it is because it makes me humble and it makes me aware of my dependence upon Christ at all times. I I was there when two of my children took their first breath. I was there staring at the judge when he declared, Natu is legally yours. I know my children so well that I can see the mistakes that they're going to make and the successes that they're going to have before they even have them. I agonize over them. I celebrate over them. I fiercely want to protect them from pain and from the world. And at the same time, I want them to learn from it. I want them to grow As a parent, you are so closely united to your children that you would do anything for their highest good. You would do anything to see them flourish and grow in Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, the good news is what we do imperfectly as parents, we have a father. A father who was there when we went from death to life. One who unites us with himself and his son through his spirit. So this morning, we're going to see exactly how that truth changes everything for us. Now and forever. So let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 for for context. And again, we'll be in the second half of 5 through verse 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, our main idea this morning, our union with Christ, it's so thorough, it's so pervasive that it changes everything now and forever. And we can see the flow of the passage here in a second by, by looking at Paul's language in the second half of verse 5. By grace you have been saved. What does Paul mean by grace? When we, we contrast here in just a second how, I can say it another way, how you do you versus how God, what He does for you, you'll see the grace if you can put up the, the next slide there. God does a much better job with you than you do with you. I want you to see it visually. You were dead. What God does for you, He makes you alive together in Christ. You were following the world, Satan and sin. What God does for you, He raises you. He seats you together with Christ in heavenly places. You were a child of wrath by nature. What God does for you, He makes you the object of immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness in Christ. So by grace, you've been saved. I want you to see again the contrast there. All the actions that you were taking in verses 1 through 3. What actions are you taking in in 5 through 7? None. None. The person who's taking the action in verses 5 through 7 is God on your behalf. That's grace. God does a much better job with you than you do with you. And I'm thankful for that. The question then answered in verses 6 and 7 is is how. We see how in verse 6 and we see why in verse 7. How does God so radically change our condition? And why does He do it? How do we go from, from dead to alive, from a child of wrath to an object of kindness? Our union with Christ answers how and why. It answers this question because it changes everything for us now and forever. So you might be thinking, all right, Paul, he's, he's saying, say by grace in the second half of five, we're about to get a logical, airtight argument of our legal standing, our forensic declaration of being righteous in Christ. There, of course, there are other places in Scripture that emphasize that. But here in 2, Ephesians 2, that's not the emphasis. It's not to diminish it. It's actually for us to see the glorious results of our standing with God. So what is union? What is the saving grace that, that Paul is emphasizing? I swear, I'd, I'd love for you to, to see it for yourself in Scripture. That's why, why digging through the Word is awesome, because you start to see what's, what's true. And here we have it over and over and over. 5a made us alive together with Christ, raised us up, and this literally Again, says, together with Him, Christ. 
verse 6, seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Three verses, five places. Paul wants us to see union with Christ in the awesomeness that was Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. No less than eight times we see in him, by him, in Christ, through the beloved. All over the New Testament, when Paul talks about union with Christ, it's, it's at least 160 times he comes back to this truth. He smashes, actually, the, the prefix. He wants us to get this so much, he creates a new vocabulary. He takes the Greek word for with and smashes that together with words like crucified, crucified with, buried with, died with, raised with, alive with. It's all over the New Testament. It's critical for us to get it for this passage, for Ephesians, for our lives as Christians. So then how do we define it? How do we define union with Christ? I, I like Rankin Wilborn's definition here because it's simple and it's biblical. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. So it's more than an idea. It's more than a belief. It's more than a doctrine. For you sitting here right now, if you are a believer in Jesus, this is reality for you. I think sometimes we we think about Christianity and and we think the goal of Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And And there's truth to that. But then we import into that term relationship our own baggage, our own thoughts, our own experiences. Well, relationships, those are hard. They're risky. They're challenging. They're temporary. The idea of relationship with Jesus is feeble compared to our actual union with him. We need a firm grasp on this. This is how it changes everything now. And forever. So let's, let's look at a few aspects of union with Christ. It's closer than your closest relationship. We see this in Ephesians 5. Marriage, the union, two become one. Now, I, I still remember the first wedding that I did. It's, it's because it was this summer, okay? I haven't forgotten it yet. <laughs> I got a new suit. Man, I got a new suit in years, Okay? I was so tight. I was so nervous. Jill had to calm me down. The the groom had to calm me down. I'm like, man, where is my pastoral presence? I should be helping this guy be. And he's completely calm. I'm freaking out. (laughs) Somebody should have reminded me of my union with Christ at that moment. Okay? The, The reason that I was nervous in large part, I wanted to be clear that their marriage, your marriage, what it actually is. It represents the mystery of a union between Christ and his church. Two become one. There is no closer relationship than this union with Christ and his church. Union with Christ means that we're connected to, we're dependent upon him. Whether it's vine and branches in, in John 15 and Thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm connected. I'm, I'm a branch. I'm connected to the vine. Well, I'm not as big as that branch. I'm not a favorite branch, and we, you know, we make it about us. Nonetheless, we're connected to the vine. We see 
In, in Ephesians 1 and 4, that Christ is the head, we're the body. Now, the body can survive without a finger, can survive without a foot, can't survive without the head. We're dependent upon Christ. But again, think of that union, the closeness of a body and a head, a vine and a, and a branch. Our union with Christ, it's living, it's active, and it's completely dependent upon Christ at this moment. So there's a reason we're camping out in, in all of these places throughout Ephesians 1 and 2. We need these truths. We need these indicatives. Because if we turn the page and we start getting into Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, and we start seeing, I've got to be kind. I need to be humble. I need to be forgiving. I need to be loving. I need to control my mouth. And, and what comes out of it? Is it? Does it give grace to those that hear or does it tear them down? The commands in the second half of this book are so weighty that we've got to see this now, that we are united to Christ and it's in him that then we can obey. We can't do it on our own. Our union with Christ is through the Holy Spirit. One of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is uniting us to Christ. I, I love this quote from, from Sinclair Ferguson. Having the Spirit is the equivalent, indeed the very mode of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to Him as He is united to the Father. So we have in, in John 14, Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm, I'm going to have to, to leave you. I have to go. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. So how can he come to them if he's leaving them? The answer is the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them the Spirit will dwell with them and will be in them. And what will the Holy Spirit be doing in them, in us John 14, 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. There is nothing closer. Think back to the beginning of John 1. Jesus was with God. The, the, the picture there is in the bosom of the Father. And then in John 17, he prays that you would be where he is. There is nothing closer than the Spirit uniting us to the Father and the Son. So brother, sister, those times where you are wrestling with doubt. And if we're honest, there are times where doubt and unbelief has the upper hand. At those times, whether it's, it's you turning to the Word, turning to prayer, or, or a friend encouraging you, it is the Holy Spirit in you responding to that truth that you are in Christ and He is in you. That's why Paul starts his prayer in Ephesians 3, praying that the Spirit would give us strength through faith to know that Jesus is dwelling in our heart. Our union with Christ is a truth that we grow into. In Ephesians 4, 13 through 15, summarize for you, as Christians, we're to mature. We're to grow into the stature, the fullness of Christ, to no longer be children, but to grow up in every way 
into Christ. So, so think about it this way. If, if I get one of my sweatshirts and I give it to Natu, and the way things are going, it's going to be a UT sweatshirt that's working out pretty well right now. Okay, and I give him a, a, a sweatshirt. It's his, but it's long. It's, it's going to be down over his hands. It's going to come down to his knees. It's too big for him, but it's his. He has it, but he's got to grow into it. He'll have to grow up into that shirt. Likewise, our union with Christ, we're fully clothed in Christ, in his righteousness. But as Christians, we grow into that reality until it fits us. I love how Wilborn summarizes this. You're not striving to attain it. You're striving to lay hold of what is already yours. You're growing up into the reality of your union with Christ. If we could get this as Christians, this is my burden for all of us, myself included, that we're growing into this reality. His perfection for us, His obedience for us, Him in us, us in Him, we grow into that reality. So this is why we should think of grace not, not as a thing, but a person. Sometimes I think we, we think of grace as kind of that cute sign that says, uh, you know, I, I need a, a little bit of coffee and, and a whole lot of Jesus today. And I don't, I don't disagree with that always, but I want to suggest to you that grace is not a spiritual red bull, a little shot of espresso, a little energy shot that we need more of today. Instead, grace is an actual person, work and presence of Jesus Christ with which you, believer, are united with right now. United to Christ is how we're saved. United to Christ is how we live, is how we die, is how we spend eternity. Changes everything now and forever. So 6 and 7 here, verse 6, and we see how far-reaching this union with Christ is, how radical, thorough, pervasive, raised up, seated together. Let's, let's read it again. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So raised up, that, that is ascended. Again, if you're united to Christ, you are with him. Ascended with Christ. That's the total opposite of being dead and buried in sins and transgressions. Seated with Christ. If we're seated with Christ, where's Christ? So go, go back to Ephesians 1. And we'll start in 19, and I want you to see where Christ is in verse 20, 119. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is a place of victory. It is a place of authority. So being seated with Christ is the opposite of being under the authority of Satan, bound to the world and a slave to your sin. The difference is dramatic. It's, it's so extreme that we might miss something subtle, how active we were when we were dead. But God sits us down. He seats us with Jesus. 
This is hard for us. We're used to walking with the world, following the devil, carrying out passions. And we come to Christ and we think, what what do I have to do? I've been given this gift. What do I have to do to to keep it, to maintain it? I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones answers that. Do you view Christianity as what you are doing and striving for or what God has done for you in Christ? Brothers and sisters, that makes all the difference of where your focus actually is. Do you view Christianity as what you're striving for and doing, or do you view it as what Christ has done for you? Sit. Receive. This is grace. You can't earn it. You can't keep it. You can't lose it. So when you've given in to temptation, and and maybe not just walking with the world, maybe this week you were running with it. You were headlong, not just dabbling a, a toe in temptation, but headlong running into sin. Confess. Repent. Sit. Receive. You are united to Christ. This is not your own doing. This is a gift that is so sure that you can't earn it, you can't lose it. So surely, all the way back in 1-3, all the way back when, when we read that the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, this has to be part of it, that we are united to Christ and that we are raised and seated with Him right now. But then, hold on, the, the inner skeptic kind of pipes up a little bit. Well, how does that work? Or if, if we're raised and seated with Christ, then how does that work? Because I'm sitting right here. The chair is blue. I can feel it under my legs. How, how am I seated with, with Christ and I'm, I'm right here? Well, my question for you is, for those of you that are married, are you still married when you're asleep? Yes. Answer yes. Okay. You still married when your, your spouse is traveling? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's true for you even when you don't feel it. We don't have to be a slave necessarily to our experiences. Okay. We can't over spiritualize what's saying here, what's being said. Be like, hey, well, this is just a future promise. That's how this is being said. We can't do that. Look, look at the language of, of verse 6, raised and seated. It's past tense. This act has been done for those united to Christ. Colossians 1.13 puts it this way, The Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So, you're with me on this theologically, let's say. I agree with you, Art. I'm saved. I know in my mind that I've been moved from death to life. I've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the, to the kingdom of the sun. My position is in Christ, but how do, I, how do I know it? How do I take it from something that I just agree with mentally to absorbing it into who I am? How do I know it? How do I experience it? How do I experience it when it's dark? When, when, when there's doubt, when I'm, when I'm suffering, how can I know? 
Like how, how can I know when things are great, when things are peachy, and I, I tend to forget about God? How can I know? Here's how. Dear Christian, there is hope for you this morning. As a believer, you have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. That means you now have different desires than the world. You have different goals and priorities than the dead. You are no longer under the authority of Satan. You have different thoughts, words, actions, priorities, gifts, and fruit than those in darkness. Since you've been raised with Christ, you are now seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Your mind is set on those things, not on the things that are on earth. When we are thinking this way, it changes everything right now. So you, you don't hear this phrase much anymore. But you, you used to hear Christians are of so, so heavenly-minded, they're, they're of no earthly good. That's ridiculous. <laughs> The more heavenly-minded we are, meaning the more convinced that we are that we're raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places, the more it changes everything we think and do and say right now. That's how we have different hearts, desires, goals, priorities than the world. So when an issue blows up between you and your spouse, you are free. You're free to pursue them like Christ pursued you instead of carrying out your own desires in the flesh. When you make a mistake at work, you're not defined by it. You're defined by Christ. You find that you're actually desiring Scripture. You want to learn more about Christ, and you want to be more like Him. You desire to serve others. And then the inner critic says, I'm not doing that all the time. I'm not good at that. I'm not perfect at these things that you're talking about, these new desires that I should have. Let me remind you, you're growing. You're growing into Christ. He is perfect where you fail. You find that you are beginning to love those who won't or can't love you in return, generous instead of greedy, desiring to be a part of a ministry like Isaiah House or Knox Angels or any other ministry where you're able to love those who cannot love you in return. There are places in your life, believer, where fear has been replaced by faith. There are places where passion has replaced apathy. You look around at a culture that idolizes personal freedom to the point of delusion and even death for the unborn that may get in their way of their version of happiness, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is not your home. This is not my home. And you can say that because you are a citizen of heaven. According to Philippians 3, 20, you are united to Christ, not to escape this world, but to be bold in it. 
not to run in fear, but to speak the truth in love, to speak life into death, to take the gospel out. So brother and sister, look around you. There's evidence all over the place of your experience of this objective truth, your union with Christ. Every time that you act in light of who you are, united to Christ, it testifies to evil in the spiritual realms that you belong to Christ and he belongs to you. Now, I don't know what a fiery dart looks like thrown back at the devil. I'd like to see that. But but I, I want you to know that every time you obey, that you act in faith, that you act against your old nature and in your new nature, united to Christ, it is a crushing blow to the devil, to the enemy, to evil. You are testifying by the Spirit that you are united with Christ, and it is so thorough. It is so pervasive. It changes everything for you now and forever. You are raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So we've seen this in verse 6, that being raised and seated, it's not an idea. It's not a theory. It's a truth for you right now. So in verse 7, we see the future. We see to what end? Why? Is it worth it to be a Christian? What's the end of it all? Why did God ultimately save us by grace and unite us to his son? Brother and sister, the answer is to, is to reveal his character, it's to show us who he is, to show us his grace and his kindness so we can see exactly what he's like. Raise us up with him, seat us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So again, we're in that place where Paul is, is stacking up words and adjectives and it can, it can roll over you like a waterfall. We need to slow it down. This, this coming ages, it means something like forever upon forever, time upon time, like we sang waves upon a beach. And when you try and focus on eternity, it can kind of bend your mind a little bit. I mean, I can think about it for six or seven seconds, offer a Keanu Reeves, whoa, and then look at my phone because I'm kind of done. It just bends my, my mind a little bit to think about, actually a lot, to think about eternity. It's due to my own immaturity. So the question is, does the thought of eternity excite you or frighten you? One of the most pernicious lies of the devil for the unbeliever is that there's no such thing. Eternity, no, it's all over. We die, the lights go out. The lie of the devil for the believer is to strike fear in your heart about eternity. If not fear, maybe a more subtle lie of... uh, It'll be boring. Forever upon forever? How's that going to work? But this word show in verse 7, it means ongoing, progressive revealing. Forever to learn more and more about the character of our infinite God. Brothers and sisters, we will never reach the end credits. We'll never reach the crescendo. We will will never hit a moment and think, man, I wish we could go back a couple billion years ago. It was so good back then. 
No. It will be ever increasing, ever more dramatic, and climactic experiences with God. So I'm 24 years married. I'm still learning about my wife. If, if you know her at all, you know how quick she is to laugh. It's like the rhythm in our home. I, I love it. And, and I, I love learning and, and trying to figure out new ways to get her to laugh. It's like an achievement for me. If I, can, if I can get that laugh, it brings me joy. And I don't get tired of it. I love learning more about her, and she's finite. In the ages to come, we will, we will continue to actively learn and grow about an infinite God. We will learn more and more about Him. We will learn and grow in all sorts of ways. Glorified minds, glorified bodies, no fatigue, no sin, Imagine it. I, I, I lose words there. Um, allow yourself to imagine it, though. Talk about it with your friends, with your family. What will it be like? We spend so much time focused on the here and now and what I'll be doing immediately after service, what I'll be doing Wednesday. Allow yourself a few minutes to think about the joy and the thrill of a trillion years from now. Not only will we learn and experience more about God, the Father will be showing us what He's done for us. So you, you know at the family reunion, maybe it's a wedding, somebody breaks out pictures, and, and invariably it's that awkward stage, okay? And for me, that was seventh and eighth grade, huge plastic glasses, questionable hygiene, uh, bowl cut, parted down the middle, high-water jeans. I had red vision streetwear skater shoes. I didn't even skate. I was such a poser. <laughs> and then mercifully, you know, that like the, the pictures from the awkward stage get put away and like, oh, look at him now. <laughs> we kind of progress. We, we feel like, hey, look where you were and where you are now. You can coordinate a shirt and a pair of pants marginally. <laughs> the major difference is God doesn't move us from, from awkward junior high guy to marginally successful grown-up. He moves us from a child of wrath to a recipient of His immeasurably rich grace and kindness forever. F.F. F. Bruce puts it this way, as pardoned rebels, we are the masterpiece of His loving kindness. He's, he's, he's like Michelangelo, just carving away. And at some point, we will in some way be put on display of like, look what I did. And it will reflect not us, but Him, His character, His beauty, His grace, His kindness on display in former rebels who are now objects of kindness. It's immeasurable. It's where we get the word hyperbole, unsurpassed, superabundant, inexhaustible, so in verse 7, we have a match to the Father's immeasurable power on display in 1, 19 and 20. That immeasurable power that, that raised Jesus from the dead that is at work in you is matched by this immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness forever. I love Chapel's quote, the recipients, we are the recipients of a never-ending torrent of kindness Copious outpouring, never ending. 
torrent of kindness. So this is how we, how we know, how we experience, how we live in light of the union with Christ that changes everything now and forever. So this afternoon, tonight, Thursday night, after multiple failures, when not only your feet but your heart and your mind feel completely mired in the circumstances of this world, when being seated with Christ just feels like wishful thinking. Sunday was a long time ago. Please allow this truth to resonate in your soul. Your next step of faith and obedience is not to try and earn anything by your performance, but to be motivated instead by what you already have, brother and sister. You already have a torrent of his unending kindness towards you, united to his son, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, once again, for the truth of your word. Father, I'm, I'm desperate in, in my own mind and heart and for the minds and, and hearts of our church body to, to not only agree with this truth that we are united to your son, but to believe it, to know it to experience it, and to live in light of it. And Father, that'll only be by your Spirit. Father, help us. Help us in this place. Help us in, in those times where we, we, we don't believe and we're doubting. Turn our hearts once again to the truth that we are hidden in Christ and He is in us. And that is how we now live in this life in an eternity. Father, we thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.